Well, good morning. Appreciate you guys coming out. I know sometimes to walk into a new place for the first time, it's hard. So if this is your first time or one of your first times coming, thank you. If you're joining us online also, we appreciate you doing that. Uh, this morning we have the opportunity to hear from Scott Mathis. Scott and I give leadership to the Brian Fellowship of Churches. So we look forward to seeing what he has to say from God's Word. All right. Thanks, Pastor Andy. Appreciate you, brother. And great to be back at North Point. Uh, if you don't know, we travel around to a different Berean church every weekend and inspire and influence God's people uh, all over the country uh, to be on mission with the gospel. So I love, uh, we actually live fairly close here, so we didn't have to drive very far. Normally we drive lots and lots of miles, so it's great to be here at North Point. I remember the bed being really hard, like uber hard. I guess it should have been. It was made out of cement. It was in a jail cell that I'd got thrown in. I watched the jailer go in before he put me into the jail cell and take the little two-inch mattress on top of the cement bed, roll it up, put it under his arm, and walk out of the jail cell. The other jailer said, why are you doing that? Why are you taking that guy's mattress? He said, if he's going to hurt one of our own, he don't deserve no mattress. You see, we had put on a dance to raise some money for a kid's rodeo, and I got pretty inebriated. Lots of people were inebriated, and one of the guys came in and attacked a friend of mine, a petite, beautiful woman. And I wasn't going to, even in my drunkenness, not going to let that happen. So we went outside and began to fight. As we were fighting, someone grabbed me from behind, who I assumed was one of his buddies. So I did the old hip roll and rolled him and stumped on him, and it was a policeman, not one of his buddies. And lots of policemen showed up really quickly and hauled me to jail. I'd been running from God for years. I hated God. I'd majored in history at the University of Wyoming to disprove Christianity. Literally hated Christians, ridiculed them for their faith, studied the Bible all the time to disprove it. Was a raging alcoholic, was this angry, messed up person. And, and in that jail cell, I had an encounter with God. God began to speak as I lay on that cement bed. I love you, Scott. I sent my son for you. A, a verse that I, my mother had made me memorize when I was a little boy from Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And I began to have moments of clarity that, that alcohol was deceiving me and messing up my life, and that God was real. And my response to that encounter with the, the unbelievable majesty of God in a jail cell in Colorado was to scream obscenities at him and get up and shake the bars of that cell and scream at the jailer for taking my bed and, and scream at God. You and I's response to our encounters with God have 
unbelievable impact on our lives and the lives we're connected to. Sometimes we have major league encounters with God in jail cells. Now, you're Nebraska nice, North Point people, or probably none of of you here have had that. But the reality is, is you are here at a corporate worship gathering of a Christian church in Lincoln, Nebraska, to have an encounter with God. And I have been on my knees this week that every one of you would not self-justify your way out of this encounter with God. That you would not stiff-arm God in this encounter, but that you would respond appropriately. God's way is much better than our way. The beauty of authentic Christianity is it's really, really practical. I have found that the majesty of God works its way out into my life in really practical ways. God's word says in in Psalm 93 that the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. Indeed, the Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Circle, if you can, at least in your mind, that word majesty. It's this Hebrew word that Bible scholars say is hard to define in English. Because it's such an all-encompassing word of how just unbelievable, incredibly powerful and big God is. Doing all the studies, I came up with my own definition of majesty. Okay? Here it is. It's kind of clunky. Webster's isn't probably going to hire me anytime soon. Majesty, the comprehensive acknowledgement of God in his power, creation, in his presence, holiness, grace to us, his love, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, his pursuit of us, his salvation of us, and his revelation of us. It's hard to define majesty because it's hard to define God on many levels. But there are moments where his majesty intersects with our life in such a way, whether we're in a jail cell or here on, off Fletcher Avenue, and we have a choice to make. Am I going, how am I going to respond to the majesty of God? The practical outworking of the majesty of God I've observed in my life, and I'm just preaching to myself, because I'm sure you guys are all perfect, because you, you, know, you go to North Point. But here's some things I've observed in my life when I have an encounter with God and I respond rightly, and it gets real practical. One, it burns away my complaining. You recognize that when you are a complainer whiner, when you're a self-centered jerk, you basically have said, either I'm God or God, you really ought to make my life perfect and easy. A lot of our culture worships at the idol of, I need comfort and ease, and life shouldn't be so hard, and when it is, I'm going to complain about it. Some of you, that is kind of how you're defined. If, if, if I could be, if, I could, if you're married and are here today, okay? 
Pick on the married couples for a while. Don't worry, I'll get to you singles in a while. But, but if I could talk to your spouse, married people, or better yet, teenagers, if I could talk to you teenagers and you could be honest with me or your spouse and be honest, and I said, is your spouse or your parental units complainers? What would they say? Think about that. The people closest to you, would they say that there is this entire stream or rhythm, as our sister mentioned earlier in the announcements, is there a rhythm where you've just established an unholy habit of complaining? And then, and then we need to encounter the holiness of God and the majesty of God that begins to burn that out of us. Because complaining ruins not just my life, it ruins the very fabric of interpersonal relationships and churches and ultimately the culture. The Apostle Paul, who was in prison, may I remind you, falsely accused. He didn't deserve to be there, okay? This guy had every human right to be whining about it and how wrong it was. Listen to his words in Philippians chapter 2. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Friends, my passion for our Berean Fellowship of Churches, that every one of our 55 churches and growing would be comprised of people who encounter the majesty of God and say, burn my complaining away. Because we, off, we, we are able to be criticized rightly when we're complainers. Paul goes on to say that we are to live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. When we don't complain, we represent Christ really well. And if you've established the unholy habit and rhythm of always being a complainer when you come home from work, I understand that we have to process some things. And it's not always complaining, and one spouse might think it's complaining, and the other it's just venting. But there is a holiness that can penetrate us through the work of the majesty of God where we don't just define ourselves by being self-centered and worshiping at the idol of comfort and ease. A second right response to the majesty of God is that I found that it begins to reveal my cynicism. A cynic is a fault-finding critic, right? And there are different ones of us who just have a bent towards cynicism. We can become cynics where all the whole track of our mind is being critical of everyone and everything. In fact, some of you might even be here right now. And the running track is being critical of me because I'm not Andy. No, I'm not Andy. <laughs> Praise God for that. <laughs> On both ways. Cynics hurt people. Oh, that'll never work. Oh, those young people, they don't know how to work anymore. They're just worthless. Oh, the old people, all they do is complain. Cynicism defines people. Cynicism says that God can't save someone or work or do a revival anymore. 
Cynicism shrugs its shoulders and says, what, it's all about me. Cynicism complains. Cynics cripple the work of God. Dear ones, encounter the majesty of God and allow His grace in His holiness and in His bigness to burn away your complaining and reveal your cynicism. One of my favorite Bible characters or people is Abraham. Remember when you're reading in Genesis about Abram at first and then he turns into Abraham, the father of many? You remember, you know much about Abraham? Abraham, great, amazing guy. Really didn't have a lot of knowledge about God, but he just builds altars and worships him. And God was like, hey, I, I know you're childless, but look up at the stars. You're going to have that many descendants. You can't even count them. Like, you can't count the stars. That's how many. All nations, they're going to be blessed through you. And I read Abraham in Genesis, and I read the story of Abraham, and I'm like, well, that's really cool, and he did a lot of awesome things, but he also like, hey, you know, when his wife said, here, here's my servant girl, sure, you know. And, and, and I kind of look at him as like, well, is it that big a deal? But, but it was, because the way Abraham was responding to his revelation of God was phenomenal. And the best explainer of Scripture is always Scripture, right? We Christians always need to remember that. When something we're reading doesn't make full sense, or we're like, huh, just read on. Read on. God's Word explains itself as we read it and reread it and meditate on it. And over in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, carried along by God, by the Holy Spirit, to write to the Romans, talks about Abraham. Look with me at Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. Every one of us listening online or in this room this morning, has things that are impossible in your life. A broken relationship, a financial issue, a health issue, something. What are you going to believe God for? Cynicism shrugs its shoulders and says, I'm just going to go through life and be like a pinball and just bang from here to here and try to gut it out. But authentic Christianity still believes in the supernatural working of God. That he might not always change the circumstance or even change the person, but he can change my inner attitude from one of complaining and cynicism to believing that God is still in the business of doing a miracle. And some of you have reduced God to a set of, of, of concrete beliefs that don't affect your heart and your, your faith that he can still work. That he's still a miracle-working God. Believe God with a holy audacity for that area in your marriage that has been tough for years. Believe God with a holy audacity for that strayed kid. Believe God with a holy audacity that he is passionate about saving people in Lancaster County, Nebraska. What are you believing God for? An encounter with the majesty of God begins to 
burn away our complaining, reveal our cynicism, and thirdly, begins to create this new healthy culture, both in me, that then begins to work its way out in my individual family unit, and ultimately the church, and ultimately society. The collective behaviors and belief systems and values of Jesus Christ as we encounter his majesty begin through the spirit of God and through the local church and through the word of God as we meditate and memorize it begins to begin to give us a culture of joy. A, a culture where we work through the family of origin issues we've had and experience the freedom of Christ. Begins to change the inner culture of cynicism and complaining to one of being emotionally healthy and free and believing God and allowing Him to be God and not always to have to make sense anymore. It begins to create this healthy culture when we're, as a collective uh, church people, begin to respond rightly to the awesome majesty of God and it begins to do its work. I think of the early church. Remember in the early church in the, in the New Testament book of Acts and, and Jesus has died and rose from the dead and, and, and then he's like, wait and pray and, and, and then there's this new deal going to start the church. And in Acts chapter 1, there's 120 people in basically the first church. 120 people. They gather in the upper room. They're praying. They all probably know each other. And they're praying and the Holy Spirit comes and begins this new miracle of grace, this new thing called the church age. And the Apostle Peter, I'm going to skip some steps here, but remember in chapter 2 in Acts, the Apostle Peter, he gets up and he preaches, and what happens? 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. The church goes from 120 people to 3,120 people overnight. As, as president of the Brian Fellowship, I always get these people who come up to me who, who are critical of other churches. They think they're really godly. Well, those big churches in Lincoln, they just can't be as good as our little small church because we know everybody. I always say, have you read your Bible? I try to do this really lovingly. Have, have you read your Bible? The church was 120, and then it was all of a sudden 3,120 people. Those people had every right to be like, man, we don't know everybody anymore. I used to, have, you know, I used to shake Peter's hand, and now there's 3,000 people trying to shake Peter's hand. I want my personal pastor to be Peter, and now it's too big. And the music they're starting to sing, it just is different. What happened in the early church? Look at Acts 2.42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Dear ones, they encountered God's majesty and allowed God to create this healthy culture. Did they have to work through them some things as you read on in the book of Acts? Yes. It's always hard to do church. It's been hard when the church started and it's hard today but the reality is when there is a collective right response to the majesty of God churches can be united in spirit and have a culture that is not about me and 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 I don't need to complain or be a cynic we are on mission together to reach lost people with the gospel 
A forthright response that I've observed is that it begins, God's majesty begins to clarify our call. If you're a Christian and are here today, God has a call on your life. And in that call are several specific assignments for you alone. Part of my call from God, one of those assignments is to be Di's husband. No other man on the planet is to be Di's husband but me. That's a unique assignment from God that is my calling to love her like Christ loves the church. And I want to be good at that. I can fool you people. You can think I'm godly and preach. I can't fool Di. I live with her. So my passion is at my funeral that my wife, if I die before her, which is probably will happen because I'm on a horse all the time, is that she can stand up if she wanted to and say, my husband accepted his call to love me rightly. If you're married, your spouse is your assignment. They're not a pain in your, in your bottom. They're not someone to complain about or criticize or be a cynical person about. They're God's gift to you. Are you single and are here today? Are you going to spend the rest of your life complaining about your, your singleness? Or are you going to say, God, you seem to have assigned me this season or maybe a lifetime of singleness, and I accept that. Do you feel like you, you, you're, you're at work, it's a pain? Is that your assignment from God, though? And you're not to go there and think, golly. You want to live your entire life thinking, oh, I just wish it was different? Or can you find the freedom in Christ and the power of Christ to live out your assignments, your specific assignments to this church, if this church is your home, to serve here? Are people messed up here? Yes. Is it a pain to serve in a local church? Yes, I get it. But God's plan for this time period of history is still the local church where God's people work out their, their call, their unique assignments and gift mixes and serve in the local church. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, that as a prisoner for serving the Lord, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. Accept those unique assignments to your spouse or to your singleness, to your church, to your world. A fifth right response to the majesty and awesomeness of God as it begins to free us from comparison. Comparison is the cancer of this age, from my perspective. There are, have study after study has shown that over the last 20 years or so, the rates of anxiety, stress, and depression have skyrocketed in our world especially in this country, directly connected to the rise of the internet and social media. The beauty of being a blood-bought child of the Most High God is that we can begin to internalize who we are in Christ instead of opening up, opening up Bragg book, I, I mean Facebook, 
and seeing that someone else has the perfect family and the perfect body and the perfect vacation and the perfect vehicle and all this. Comparison is a cancer that is ruining our lives. Now, I'm not saying let's go burn our phones and get off social media in the parking lot after this service. I am just saying that when you and I encounter the majesty of God, you and I can learn to have a holy indifference to how the world defines us. Some of you, either listening online or in this room, you're not accepting that your spouse finds you beautiful or handsome. And they try to tell you and you diss on them. Because you're comparing yourself to the size two. Or the person with the bigger or less than or whatever it is. And an encounter with the majesty of God begins to say, I can have a holy indifference to how the world wants to define me or Satan wants to define me or my sinful nature wants to define me and I am defined by the living God of the universe and I can be learned to be comfortable in my own skin and free in Christ. But the life of comparison robs us of joy. It makes us cynical complainers. And, and, and a lot of our anxiety and stress and depression come from unholy and unhealthy comparison. Dear ones, we're Christ ones. We are blood-bought children of the Most High God. Not one of you is a mistake. Not one of you is less than God loves you. I am on a mission that God's people find freedom in Christ to be who Christ created them to be instead of living this constant comparison lifestyle that is literally putting, building these jail cell walls up around you and not allowing you to see the beauty in life and be free in life and enjoy life. The Apostle Paul literally grew up in, in, in a comparison culture. He, was, he became a Pharisee. In the Jewish religion, the Pharisees loved comparison. In fact, their whole subcultural mindset was, I'm better than you because, and you're a worse sinner than me because I do these things for God. And I tithe my, my little spices down to the nth degree, so therefore... I'm good, you're bad. And in the Pharisaical uh, system, they constantly complained and were cynical and compared with each other. And then the Apostle Paul meets Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road and gets radically born again and discovers that he does not have to live in comparison and in some verses in Corinthians, I just love them because I believe they speak to the Apostle Paul's freedom in Christ that ultimately you and I can have as well. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. 
Friends, we can grow with a holy indifference to the world system and allow Christ to give us a a dramatic freedom because we're not living in comparison. A sixth right response that I've observed in my life and I believe is true for all believers everywhere is that when you and I encounter the awesome majesty of God as it begins to call us to to a life of consecration, we're called to be holy because God is holy. Our holiness is, is, is uh, before God is because Christ clothes us with his holiness. But then you and I, in the sanctification process, are called and commanded to grow. When you and I encounter the great holiness of the majesty of God, and we look at our phone, and there are horrible images or the porn, or whatever it is, we're called to live a consecrated life. When you and I are tempted at work to join in with the crowd and fudge on the expense account, or join in the office gossip, that's not being a consecrated person for God. Not to, not to, to think through this in, tri- in, in like... Um, oh, I can't do that because i got to keep my standing with God. That's not what I'm saying. Our our standing before God, if we are Christ ones, is one of perfection. But you and I, God has called us and empowered us to live a life that is separated unto holiness. And every generation has to figure this out. But dear ones... You and I can have these encounters with the majesty of God and we're like, oh, those cuss words I'm saying are not bringing glory to you. That gossip I so easily participate in is not a holy life or whatever it is. 2 Corinthians 7.1, God's word says, because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. Dear ones, a right response to the majesty of God calls us to a life of consecration. And then, finally, a right response to the majesty of God makes us never lose the wonder of our conversion. Are you a Christian in our here today? Did you become a Christian maybe at your mommy's knee when you were a little child? Or, or, or maybe you met Jesus in, in some childhood group or in high school or in college when some acquaintances shared the gospel with you. It doesn't matter whether you were 4 or 40. It's a miracle that God saved you. And when you and I encounter the majesty of God and, 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 and say, boy, there's a lot of mystery to this God and there's a lot of mystery to you and a mystery to life, but the reality is, is you are awesome and somehow you worked in my life and I made a choice to change my mind about you and I believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and God, you redeemed me. You took and transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. How awesome is that? As we travel around, I'm meeting a lot of Christians who are kind of blasé about their salvation, and I'm like, man, come on. It's awesome to be a Christian. Is it a pain some days? Yes. 
Does it always make sense? No. But friends, if you're a Christian, it is a beautiful thing to be a Christ one. Never, ever lose the wonder of your conversion. Back to the Apostle Paul. He's getting ready to die. He's an old man. He's served in the church and planted churches and served for year after year in, in hardship and toil. If there was ever an old guy who could be cynical and complaining, it would be the Apostle Paul. And yet, as he is closing out his life, he writes to his young protege, Timothy, and he writes these words. As I read these words, think to yourself, is this how I want to end up? Is this a man who, was, who, who, who had lost the wonder of his conversion? I don't think so. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. Exclamation point. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. That is a man who hadn't lost the wonder of his conversion. And some of you maybe in your encounter with God today are like, thank you. I, I've kind of got a lifestyle of taking that for granted, but now I worship you. How are you going to respond to this encounter with God? You know, much of victory in the Christian life is won through surrender, not struggle. I would encourage you in this encounter with God that you would be like, God, I, I need you to burn away my complaining and cynicism and develop this healthier culture within me. God, I forgot about the awesomeness of my conversion and, and, and I need you because this comparison lifestyle is killing me. In March of 1990, I was driving down the interstate. I began to review in my mind that I had tried for years to disprove the historicity of Christ and the Bible. And yet the more I read this book, the more I realized it wasn't a book about God. It was a book by God. That it really was God's revelation to humankind. Yes, he used humans to write it, but there was something different about this book. And in a holy moment, the majesty of God, as I drove through Debec Canyon over in Rifle, Colorado, by Rifle, Colorado, I had an encounter with God. And that day, instead of cussing him and stiff-arming him, I said, I give up, God. <laughs> and Jesus Christ saved me that day, and my life has never been the same. Now, I've had the privilege of literally going all over the world preaching the gospel of Jesus. And many other people have been impacted by my right response to that encounter with the majesty of God. Friends, 
your response of rebellion or surrender to your encounters with the awesomeness of God have unbelievable influence on your life personally, but also every life that you touch. Oh, Father, thank you for encountering us through your Spirit and through your Word and through other Christ ones gathered here at this place. Oh, Father, we desire to respond rightly. We don't want to stiff-arm you. We don't want to self-justify our way out of obedience to you. We do not want to be cynical. So, God, we surrender and ask your Spirit to do a miracle of grace in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.